Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Securing Bridges podcast. You're about to join Alyssa Miller as she sits down with senior and executive security leaders to share stories of success and failure while working across business teams. It's time to build and secure the bridge to the business. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Securing Bridges fans, look, we're back once again. Episode 22 of Securing Bridges. See, I'm starting to keep track of the numbers now. That's amazing. Oh my God, 22 episodes already. Wow. That's kind of, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm having a moment here. I can't believe it's been that many. But happy you're all here with us, joining us once again. Uh, we've got yet another great show for you. We are talking, as we always do, on Securing Bridges. How do we bridge the gap between the security folks and the non-security folks? A lot of times it's in business. A lot of times it extends beyond business, too. We've had so many different guests. We've talked about how to do it between government and the private sector. We've talked about how to do it between, um, you know, obviously different areas of the business and so forth. So we're just going to keep it going here. We got another great show, another amazing guest. I'm super excited for this one today. So let's get into it. With us today, I'm super excited. One of my most favorite people in all the world. It's Stephanie Greg. Stephanie, how are you? I am so good. Thank you for having me, Alyssa. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining. This was this was one I kind of, you know, a little red circle on the calendar if I actually had real calendars anymore. But uh, no, I'm really excited to have you. So tell uh, our viewers, listeners, just a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, when I start, they're probably going to wonder why you're talking to me, but I promise they'll have the answer by the time they're done. Um, I am a clinical social worker and certified sex therapist. I work with uh, erotic minorities, gender, sexuality, relationship differences. Uh, Specifically, I tend to concentrate on the BDSM and kink communities. I write about their lives, their mental health, their worlds, the risk and safety factors. And I'm also a um, PhD in clinical sexology who got bored doing that. And so I enrolled in a cyber criminology program. So I'm currently studying cyber criminology with a special interest in what they call, and I cringe at cyber deviants, um, specifically the way erotic minorities um, both the law abiding and the less so move around online and in digital spaces. Uh, I am waiting to see if I get into a program that would let me do some deep dive research into the intersection of anti-Semitic messaging and anti-sex messaging and how those two are used by extremists online to um, radicalize people and to kind of create narratives that cause stigma for all kinds of people in our country today. So I'm doing a lot of work around cyberspace and sexuality and the intersection of that and technology. And all of that is culminating in a conference and that we're doing um, myself and my partner, Wolf Gorlick, uh, next year in Detroit called Securing Sexuality that's going to bring together privacy and security experts with the sexual health community to talk about 
uh, users who are also our clients and clinicians who are also recommending tools and tech and products and how we can make um, the digital and technological world a little bit safer for the people who use technology to enhance their um, relationships and sexuality. There is so much there, I can't wait to dive into. This is great. But first of all, hopefully people just figured it out. I mean, <laughs> right from the start, you, you, you described exactly why you're here, right? I mean, not only are you in this, this cybersecurity program, but even before that, the people you're working with have such a, an absolute need to understand their own privacy and cybersecurity threats and that threat model and, and just basic concepts for how they protect themselves. Now you use the term and I want to see if I catch, I think I remember you said erotic minority. Is that what you said? I said erotic minority indeed. Can you, can you just help, help me and everyone else just sort of understand what that, what you actually mean by that term? Yeah. So I, I suppose the easiest way to say it would be, we, we could say it's a, little bit more of an academic term for kink, right? Like there's this idea that um, there's like vanilla people and then there's kinky people and those two very rarely inter interact or overlap. When really the idea of kink is very time and culture specific. So what is completely mainstream and normal and vanilla in one country or at one time period in America is aberrant, deviant, criminal at other times or in other places. So instead of labeling things as vanilla or kinky, I talk about things as being erotic minorities or, or minority practices, because that takes kind of some of the value statement off of it or the assumption that if somebody's doing something different, they're doing something bad, wrong, or weird. And it just acknowledges that they're doing something that maybe other people don't do. Okay. No, and that's fair. And I just, I want to explore because like I said, it was even a term that I, I didn't recognize. And I was, I think that, that that sets kind of a stage for the conversation today, right? Because we're talking about people who, you know, I mean, I'll admit in the back of my head, I wonder, are they even minorities? You know, when we, when we think about what is actually vanilla or socially acceptable, I got to admit, I kind of wonder how many people really fit into just that and nothing more. But regardless, at least we understand what we're talking about. And these are people who are at least, if nothing else, more open and exploring, I would assume, those those areas of their sexuality. And as such, yeah, they, they have that tendency to potentially be vilified. Yeah. And it's that's very true. And thing is, you know, the, when we talk about erotic minorities, it can be people that practice ethical non-monogamy or who have open relationships, people who um, are poly and, you know, have multiple relationships, um, my kinksters that I already talked about. But so many of those individuals find their community in online spaces because you're right. There are so many more people engaged in diverse practices than are talking about their practices. And that makes sense because I mean, there's a time and a place for talking about what we do in the bedroom and it's probably not at work over lunch. So the, the, the quiet part of it, as opposed to the secret part of it, you know, it makes sense. But so many of my clients and their communities find each other online 
And so that's really where this idea of privacy and security and risk come into play in, in my practice. So I'm kind of curious about that. Um, you know, when we talk about, okay, they find that, and I don't think that's a, that's probably not a surprise concept to anybody watching, right? That, you know, people who are in various sexual communities are able to connect online more so than they were before we had the internet. But the thing I always kind of wonder about that is, is it because of the general anonymity that you don't really have, but the kind of perceived in an anonymity that we have online and so people can more openly talk about it? Or is it because there are there's a small number of people who will openly discuss this in any event and now they're able to make those connections across broader geographical areas given the internet or maybe even a combination of the two? It's definitely a combination of the two. I think in every community group, um, whether we're talking about a sexual or relationship community or religious community or cyber community, you know, we have the people who are more extroverted, who have places or lifestyles that let them just let their freak flag fly, no matter what that form takes for them. And the other people who have commonalities or have curiosities about that will gravitate towards those louder voices. So it starts with, if you think back pre-internet to like the 40s, 50s, 60s, it starts with that one guy in the neighborhood everybody knows is just a little off. And then all the teenagers in the neighborhood are like, all right, I know I can go and ask him anything. Or I know I can go to her if I get in trouble. And yeah. so there, there becomes a support network that builds up around those people who have a life and a, a safety a safety net around them that lets them be loud and proud about whatever it is they're doing. And that makes sense. You know, obviously, it's, it's, it, you know, for people who do that, it, it's freeing. I, I mean, I can speak to my own experiences, maybe not even, I mean, not necessarily sexually. I don't know that I've been that open about that, but I've been open about other areas of my life and it is freeing because it, it kind of takes, what I found is when there's not secrecy about it, it, it takes away a tool that the haters would use against you. Right. Yeah. And that's why like people talk about my OPSEC all the time. And, you know, the, the amount of information somebody can find out about me. In fact, it just happened this week. There was another a, a picture I posted that had some information and it was going to give people information about me. I'm like, you can spend two minutes on Google and find that same information. Right. Um, so, you know, as we think about it, then where does that line kind of fall between, all right, I share a lot of this because I'm that open person and wait, that's too much. And that's stuff I can't, I'm not going to share or shouldn't be shared. And I, I need to be protecting. So with my clients, and this is true, no matter who they are or why they're seeing me, we talk a lot about the difference between secrecy and privacy that, you know, with secrecy, there tends to be kind of this implicit assumption that I'm keeping a secret because I'm embarrassed or I'm keeping a secret because I'm ashamed or I'm keeping a secret because it's somehow wrong. As opposed to private just means, no, it's mine and it's not yours. And it has it's not a value statement on how I feel about this information. It's just this information is mine and I can choose who and when and how to share that. 
Um, this comes up a lot with the couples that I work with who are parenting. We talk about um, with their children, sex ed, um, divorce conversations, relationship things, you know, how much do you tell your kids about your life? And the, the notion of allowing yourself to be private, allowing yourself to have information that belongs to you is a really, really important concept. And it's a form of boundary setting that is really important in my work. So it's really more about the agency to decide how that information gets used rather than necessarily about trying to keep it hidden or keep it out of the public eye. That is kind of the difference. Am I? Yeah, absolutely. You have things that you're private about, but if that private information were to end up online, you might be angry that your privacy was violated, but you wouldn't necessarily feel ashamed about the information itself. A secret, on the other hand, if a secret gets caught out or leaked or let out, the emotional response that we have, embarrassment, fear, shame, that's going to be much different than my boundary was violated. It's going to be my sense of self was violated. And those are really different mindsets. Okay. So when we think about that, then in terms of say, you know, some of your clients who are, you know, in different kink communities or other things, they, they, I mean, there's going to be information there that they don't necessarily want public. Mm -hmm. And it might not even be that they're embarrassed by it themselves, but it's information that by it being public can impact their lives. Right. I mean, let, let's, let's be honest, you know, some of that information gets out at, and especially if they're in a very public facing role, their employer or whomever, you know, clients that would work with them, whatever, may take issue with that. It can cost them business. It can cost them their jobs. So that kind of, where does that sit then in that, that sort of secret versus privacy thing? And, and how do you work with your clients and to really understand managing that? Lots and lots of conversations because everybody's individual risk framework for their lives is going to be different. And we talk about what legal protections are out there for different populations and groups. And we talk about what is the best and worst case scenario if you were outed to a boss, to your kid's principal, to your kids. And we we have conversations that lets them decide what level of risk is acceptable for them. It's not dissimilar at all from the work that you and Wolf and others do when it comes to managing information about banking or businesses. Well, I mean, this is something I, I, I give talks on threat modeling, and this is how I open it. And that is the idea that threat modeling is just, it's this fancy word for something every single human being in this world does on a daily basis. And I, I use some examples, but it's, so yeah, that connection between what we talk about in terms of cybersecurity and threat modeling and what we talk about just in daily lives, how do we understand our own, to use the cybersecurity term, risk tolerance mm -hmm. and, you know, and a, and a, and respond appropriately to what we perceive as potential threats, there, there's a lot of intersectionality there. And I think that that's important because this is where, again, now the work that you're starting to do, getting into more of a cybersecurity focused program, that all has direct applicability to the people you're working with every day. 
Yeah, it absolutely does. And that is a part of the conversations that we have because especially within the world of BDSM and kink, long distance relationships are so common that um, the the availability of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi enabled sex toys are really popular because, you know, they enhance connectivity. They let you feel close to somebody when you're far apart. They're also imminently hackable. Um, I talked to my clients about the case last year where um, Bluetooth enabled uh chastity devices, effectively cock cages, were hijacked and held ransom. And the hackers were holding people's junk for ransom. They wanted uh, 0.75 Bitcoin to release your penis. So, you know, when my clients are talking about sex toys and long distance relationships, those are the conversations that I'm having. And it blows their minds because nobody knows these things happen. And they absolutely do. Wow. Because, I mean... You mentioned, I didn't even realize that that was, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Of course it exists, but I mean, if you can think of it, it exists, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the the concept of, and I, I'm actually, I know this word now. I did not realize this was a real word until someone threw it at me, but teledildonics yeah. is an actual market. And mm-hmm. it's exactly like you said, I mean, being able to remotely control sex toys and, you know, it's one of those things, yeah, you initially you would think about that, you know, especially if, if, you know, that style of kink isn't your thing, as far as like, you know, you mentioned a cock cage and whatnot, that's okay. You might look at that and say, well, okay, someone can control my dildo or, you know, whatever toy, big deal, right? Well, now you've just given a really good example of where, yeah, that might be a really, really big deal. And now it's like, okay, what do you do with that? You know, um, so, so as you're trying to coach people through that, where is it, you, you mentioned that some of them are kind of surprised, but oh, yeah, most of them do, are. do you find that they've, some of them have sort of already gone down that path and just, you know, accept that or where, where do you kind of land with those conversations typically? So I think people are more accepting of the risk for social media sites than they are with toys. The the idea that their toys are hackable is a complete shock to most of my the people that I talk about this with. And I don't want to limit it to just clients, right? I do I do clinical supervision with my colleagues. I do presentations all around the country. This is surprising news even to other clinicians. Um, but people tend to be much more trusting of social media sites, of dating websites. They assume that um, the people that are creating these sites that have big names that are very popular and, and famous within not only the mainstream world, but also you know niche communities have a certain degree of security behind them. I, I think that there's a naivete around the, the, the security design that goes into a new product or a new site. I actually, um, the idea of our conference came up because somebody reached out to me on Twitter and said, I know that you're a sex therapist. I know that you work with these populations. I'm building a new dating website specifically for kinky people. Would you share it with your clients? And I suspect most of my peers who don't have 90% of their friend circle in the hacker community (laughs) would have been like, yeah, this is great. It's a new resource. We're always looking for things to help build connections. I knew enough to pause and I actually sent the site to a friend of mine who's a pen tester 
And all I said was, can you let me know if this is safe to share with my clients? And within 30 minutes of asking the request, using only things that were publicly available, open facing, he was sending me their users, Pinterest pages, their Facebook pages. It took him no effort, no time and no access for anything. And those are the things that I end up having a lot of conversations about because people need to assume that anything they put online, especially anything that is intimate, personal, erotic, or sexual, you need to put it online with the assumption that it is publicly available to everybody because that's the only way you can really gauge risk. It's better to assume anybody can see it and decide if you're comfortable with that than to just send that one picture to that one person that you've been really building a close bond with who may or may not be who they think they are. Yeah. I mean, it's, and here's where I date myself a little bit, but I mean, Ashley Madison, anybody? Hello. I mean, that was a huge de- ordeal when they were breached. And I mean, we're talking, what was that? God, that's got to be almost 10, 12, 15 years ago now. I think. Um, 2015. Uh, is that? No, it had to be sooner than that, right? Because I'm just thinking back through employment history and where I was working. I remember when that, that came down because we had a we had someone I worked with who was exposed via it. You want to know how I can usually date it? And I I'm, might not be super precise, but I can usually date it. And you're either going to laugh or you're going to gasp, but I'm okay with either one. Because my ex-husband was in the breach and that was before my divorce. And that's how I can generally ballpark when that news came out. There you go. Okay, fair, fair. Nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> not the thing that you want to have happen, but all right, there it is. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I look at that and it's like, so way back, you know, way back again. Okay. Um, but back then already, like we knew these things weren't safe. Um, and I, I think about it now and it's like, you know, I, I have an ex who did I don't know if if they still do, but did uh, you know streaming? And I remember being told, "Oh yeah, you know I'm safe because look, they they do all this stuff. I had to send them my driver's license and everything else." I'm like, "And you thought that's safe? That's for their liability. That's not for them protecting you." Yeah. How do you how do you figure that makes you safer? And it was a long conversation with them about look. There is nothing here that's making you safe. In fact, if that's like it's breached, boy, there's a lot of information that just got given up about you. I actually, oddly, have similar conversations with my peers, uh, especially since COVID happened and so many of us moved to telehealth-only practices because in order to provide therapy in the United States, you have to have a national provider number and you have to legally provide specific information about where you're practicing. And if you're a telehealth provider, um, that information is foyable. And so they don't bother to keep it private. Anybody can go online and look up any, they're, they're, a healthcare provider, therapist or doctor, whoever, look up their national provider number and it will give them address, employer, contact information, everything. And so for clinicians who are doing telehealth practice, a big part of the conversations I've been having have been use a mail drop, get a virtual address, do something. Otherwise, your home address is listed as your practice and it is publicly available 
thanks to the federal government. Yeah, and again, for the work that you're doing in particular, like there, there's a major threat there, right? I mean, having that information exposed, that you know, especially now when we're already seeing, uh, you know, bomb threats against hospitals that provide trans care and and things like that. It, it's you know, so I, same boat. It feels like that, like that same threat is going to exist for folks in your shoes who are providing that as a service because there is this weird, violent, cringe faction out there that, you know, in, in recent years just feels emboldened to do whatever the heck they want and let their hatred flags fly. Um, so how are, what can we do in your mind, in your view, to start kind of reaching people like your peers, for instance, and help them understand this a little bit better? I think a huge part of it is the, the same talks and conference presentations and panels that happen in the cybersecurity world. I wish that people would pitch those outside of the industry and go into other communities. Approach, you know, the uh, American APA, the American Psychological Association, and National Association for Social Workers. Uh, look at your local or state um, mental health provider groups and look at their conferences and say, I would love to come and do a talk on cybersecurity for therapists. I would love to come and do a talk on risk mitigation strategies if you work with violent offenders or if you work in settings with people that may be potentially volatile. I don't want to stigmatize anybody by like saying, if you work with these diagnostic codes, you need this help. But I mean, there are clinicians who know they work with more high-risk populations than others. And it would be amazing if the people that had that information, who do such a great job of informing and educating themselves within cybersecurity, were to start offering those same talks outside of that world. So let me ask you this, and this is me poking and prodding a little bit. Do you feel like that community, the your you know, the therapist community, or I'm not whatever you, I'm not sure I'm using the right terms here. I apologize, but are they receptive to it? And here's why I ask. I'll I'll I'll, I'll qualify it. Is I tried to do the same thing with human resources, right? I have tried on multiple occasions now submitting to not only the largest and primary human resources conference in the country, at least, but others as well, they aren't, they don't seem to be interested at all. Right. Like I I've pitched, you know, all sorts of different talks and I can't seem to get their interest in even hearing that. So I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Do you feel like that that is a, or is this something too, or we've got to kind of overcome a bit of a barrier? I actually think there's a little bit of a difference between HR and healthcare, specifically mental health care. Because in HR, I think the HR teams, the HR organizers are assuming that the companies and organizations have that covered. That we don't need to hear the content because our security teams in our company are going to make sure that we know what we need to know. In mental health care, the vast majority of us are in tiny, small little practices or our solo practitioners. Alternatively, the next biggest group is working in community mental health. 
So they're typically driving from client to client. They're typically going into client homes. They're doing intensive outpatient work. Clients are coming to see us. We might be the only person in the building. And so I think there's a little bit of a difference between, well, we got guys that do that. And this is how you can keep yourself safe if you're concerned that um, you might have a client that could become volatile. Or you brought up the, you know, the children's hospital bombing threats. I have friends that are professional sex educators who have been called groomers simply because their job is, this is how we teach age appropriate sex education. This is what you would say to a four-year-old versus a 14-year-old and these are the differences. The fact that they are acknowledging that children need information at all, they are being called groomers and they are being attacked professionally. So between the, the practitioners that are working in very small isolated settings, the practitioners that are working in large agencies, but with potentially more volatile client groups, and then the people that might be working in other fields, but are experiencing some of those exact same threats that you were talking about. I think that the audience is there. I just think okay. they don't know who to ask and the security world doesn't typically reach out. Sure. And that makes sense, right? I mean, it, and that's what is going to make it easiest is if there's an audience there that actually is looking for or craving that message. So the listeners out there, there you go. Here's a really untapped area that we can start connecting cybersecurity to some individuals who really need to hear it, who need the message, who need that knowledge more than anything else. I mean, this is a, a place we can start Turning now, I know Stephanie, you've given talks at cybersecurity conferences before. Giving so, one next week. I'm going to be at Circle CityCon. I'm doing a brief history of cyber sex, 10,000 years of sex tech in 50 minutes. It'll go fast, but it'll be fun. <laughs> I think I'm attending this talk. As long as it's at the same time as mine, because I'm also speaking. And, you know. I don't think so. I looked at the schedule and I didn't see any conflict. So I think we're good. Awesome, because I need to check this out because this sounds fascinating. But so as you kind of look to now, you, you talked about you're in this cybersecurity program and, and you, you mentioned some research that you're hoping to, to kind of dive into. Can you dig into that a little bit more and tell us, you know, where do you see that, that kind of headed or what, what's your goal there? So I'm going to get super nerdy for a minute and I'll apologize, but I am so excited about this, this whole idea. Um, so one of the things that we've noticed, you talked about the groomer situation and one consistent theme in that has been a lot, a big uptick in anti-Semitic messaging. There's been a lot of Jews are human traffickers, Jews control the porn industry, Jews therefore are corrupting society. A lot of what we see with QAnon and Gamer, not Gamergate, Pizzagate, the whole idea of like draining children's blood for adrenochrome <laughs> ties directly back to medieval blood libel against the Jewish community. It's really weird how obvious it is if you have that sort of lens. So what I want to do as a sexual health professional and as a sexual health academic who happens to be Jewish is I want to look specifically at the link between anti-sex messaging, which we're seeing a dramatic uptick in, in gender affirming care, in sexual health and reproductive justice. There has been a tremendous backlash against 
the acknowledgement of human beings as sexual creatures, <laughs> just in general. And taking that and looking at how those two blend, at how this anti-sex backlash is being framed through this lens of anti-Semitism and how that's being used to radicalize people today in order to promote bomb threats, to encourage violence, to change voting patterns, to really shift our culture in some very strange and scary ways. I was looking at the patterns in how witch trials have occurred over time, the, the cultural and social factors that will spur a witch trial. And a lot of what happened in Europe in the Middle Ages, in Africa in the 90s, in um, China during the Cultural Revolution, we're seeing happen here now. And the main themes tend to be anti-sex, anti-Jew. And so I want to really dig in and do some research around that. I need to get the funding to do it. That's what I'm kind of crossing my fingers and waiting for. If not, it might just turn into a passion project. I do in between clients. Sure. No, and it's, I mean, you mentioned that and it, it all makes a lot of sense in, in so much as like, there's a lot of patterns of that through the course of history. I mean, I, you know, I mean, the obvious one, of course, being World War II, and we can think about, you know, Nazi Germany and, and exactly what you just described, you know, the vilification of Jews, the vilification of anything having to do with sexual anything. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's the same targets. Yeah. And this is, I think, something that I, I love that you're talking about digging into this and formalizing a lot of it, because, you know, what happens right now is a lot of these people who are kind of close to, but maybe not yet on that radicalized edge seem to you know say that people are overreacting when they compare that right-wing radicalized edge to the Nazis in Germany, and yet it's the exact same victims that they're targeting all over again. You know, as you said, you know, Jewish community, the trans community, the gay and lesbian community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's the exact same groups. So clearly there's something more there. Yeah. I... I like to reassure or comfort people that we can look at patterns without necessarily putting labels on it. I think that if I tell somebody, you really seem to be embracing a lot of sort of neo-Nazi propaganda, they'll push back. So I'm not a Nazi. How dare you say that? I don't want to hear you. You're calling me names. But if we say, you know, if we look at this pattern of behavior, we can see where it ends up. Magnus Hirschfeld was a, a scientist and a researcher in Germany um, at the turn of the century. And his institute, he was one of the first people to, to create the discipline of sexology. And he actually studied gender. He studied the science of gender and transgender people, LGBT people. He himself was gay. Um, and one of the first things that the Nazis did was literally destroy his institute and burn his work, his works. When we see the famous pictures of the book burnings, all of Hirschfeld's research and writings was a huge part of that. Some of those happened right outside of his institute. And the motto of Hirschfeld's institute was justice through science. And I love that so much. And I think that that needs to be really centered for so many people today, because it's not about who the individual person is. It doesn't matter if they're an erotic minority, a gender minority, a mainstream white hetero dude, it doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is, are we using science in the pursuit of justice? 
And I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, when we talk about cybersecurity, we're talking about a community where there's a lot of that logic side of things that gets applied typically. Right. And, you know, I, we've somehow, and I, you, you watch like this course on social media and you see how the cybersecurity community in particular has sort of almost adopted ourselves as, you know, to some degree defenders against misinformation. And of course, that's what all this comes down to. It, it, it's misinformation campaigns that, as you said, are, are used to radicalize and to, to drive a very different objective. And so, you know, I'll, I'm going to be kind of curious to see as you start to, to really formulate this, where that turns in and how, you know, ultimately, since you have that kind of understanding of the cybersecurity end of this, where that maybe gets intertwined in all of this. As a social worker, I'm trained to look at everything through a systems lens, right? I, I'm, I am, my, my academic brain looks at how the system functions. And living in the cyber age, the technological age that we do, you can't separate technology. The technology is the system. And so, so much of cybersecurity, what we block versus what we allow, what we tolerate versus what we refuse, all of those decisions are happening within the world of InfoSec and cybersecurity, and they are having profound, profound cultural ramifications. Um, the case this week with the giant horrible site that I'm still not comfortable necessarily talking about came down to cybersecurity companies making decisions. Yeah. And so it really speaks to the impact that individual data defenders, individual hackers who like to do some of that more gray hat, like poke around in places we shouldn't be work, people who are programming AIs and making decisions around what becomes our definition of normal. All of that impacts the society that we're building. And for myself, as somebody who works with people who very rarely get lumped into that normal category for any number of reasons, religious, ethnicity, erotic preferences, you know, the, the information is the system. And what we choose to do with that really determines the kind of world that we build for the people that I work with every day. And this goes back to something, it's like a common pet peeve, I guess, for lack of a better term. But the people who complain that, you know, why, why are you, you're in cybersecurity, why are you talking about politics? What you just covered is why the two are completely inseparable. And more so than even politics, it's just society. And we're all a part of society and wanting a society where people don't have to feel, you know, at risk to their physical, their financial, their employment, you know, well-being because of just who they authentically are, I think is, is something that can be appreciated universally, but also needs to be a focus of cybersecurity. Yeah. The cybersecurity world, particularly those working with allowances, working with who's allowed in, who's not, what's considered, what is specced out as being acceptable versus concerning, you know, how are we going to filter things? All of those choices happen in 
boardrooms in socks far, far, far away from like the place where I practice therapy. But all of those choices impact my clients every day. And they either keep them safer or they put them more at risk. And they either bring them in or they push them out. And all of these individual things create a system that either advances justice through science or perpetuates radicalization and hatred and violence and stigma. And I, for one, prefer justice. Yeah. No, and I, you know, we had a past episode and this might've even been when you and I started talking about getting you on the show, but I had Dr. Olivia Snow on here, who is also Mistress Snow. Yes. And she pointed out that, you know, oftentimes if you want to see, you know, where the cybersecurity industry is headed, watch sex work. And it, I feel like, you know, the, the King communities and such that you work with probably are similar in that regard. And I realize there's probably even some overlap with, with sex work there as well. But, you know, it's, there's a lot that can be learned just by watching both the threats that those communities are subjected to and even sometimes how they respond to those threats. Um, it the overarching theme or message, if there is a broader message in my Circle City Talk beyond, isn't it cool all that we've done over time, is that every time humans have a tool, the first thing we do is sexualize it. it every yes. step of the way, the, I, the, oldest, um, the oldest statue ever made from something like 7,500 BC. I, I'm not going to put the date on it, but literally the oldest extant statue that any archaeologist has found, they're like, huh, maybe this is a deity. Maybe this is a fertility thing. And then 45 miles away, they found a partner that they go together. And no, it's two figures having sex. So, I mean, truly, the technology follows sex and sex spurs innovation. Oh, so totally. Everybody's safe in the process. Totally. Everybody wants to know why VHS went out over Betamax. Yeah. <laughs> sex is your answer. 100%. How did DVD become so successful? <laughs> sex. You know, yeah. And it's, <laughs> how did the internet explode? <laughs> sex. It, it just happens. It, it's the way of things. And yeah, so let's deny that we're sexual humans, right? We are wired for connection. <laughs> we, at our most basic primal level, we are people that need people. And we will always use whatever tools and resources we have available to either bring people together or to shove people apart. But but we are always looking for our people. And I think that cybersecurity should make that easier and safer to do. I love it. And on that note, I'm looking at the time and we got to wrap up. But this has been wonderful. I love this conversation. Um, for the folks out there listening, I hope you enjoyed it as well. This is these are the kinds of perspectives we need in cybersecurity, in my opinion. We need to think our implications in the overall world. It's not just about securing businesses. It's not just about securing governments or, you know, things like that. It's everyday life that we have the ability to impact. And Stephanie, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing some of that perspective with us. Thank you so much for having me. And if I, if you, if we have made anybody curious about this, um, they should check out our conference next year, Securing Sexuality here in Detroit. Awesome. Well, I will have to check this out. So, 
All right. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have. Thank you, everybody that tuned in today. Uh, for those of you listening to the recording or on the podcast, please be sure to keep tuning in. We're so happy to have you checking out uh, the show. Always wonderful guests week after week. Uh, this one will be available on podcast. If you're watching the video or the recording, you know it. In a few days, we'll have it up. Podcast will be available for you, so you can check that out. Be sure to subscribe. We're on all the major platforms. You'll get the notice for every new episode that we put out there. And until next time, please stay safe, folks. Love you all. Take care. And we'll see you next time on Securing Bridges with yet another amazing guest. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Securing Bridges podcast with Alyssa Miller. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.